Hi, everyone. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and with me is the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Joe, we have a big wrap-up episode today. What are we talking about? Hello, Jessica. We've done this kind of thing before. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of the Passing Judgment podcast, so happy birthday to us, right? Happy anniversary to us. We should find some lovely outdoor setting with our respective significant others and toast this. Indeed, he do. We should have some cake or a beer or both. So we are just, as you said, we are just days after the end of the 2021-2022 Supreme Court term. And as much as court experts might say that every Supreme Court term is consequential, this particular season, this court is reshaping our country in a new image. And that image is reflected in the court's new 6-3 to conservative majority. Jessica, we have, as we have said at least twice already, we have a lot to discuss. But have you ever seen a Supreme Court term like this one? No. People have asked me about this term. As you know, I've had the opportunity to talk a lot about the cases as they've come out. And now looking back, it is not hyperbolic to say that it is the most consequential term of my lifetime. And the court just went very big on so many issues. This is the most conservative court we have had in somewhere between 75 and 100 years. And it really shows in every way. And they are just peeling back, depending on your perspective, or adding to the foundation of our law in ways that deeply affect people's daily lives. So, of course, the case that we're going to think about this term is going to be the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. We will always remember in late June of 2022, that was when the court said there is no longer constitutional protection for the right to obtain an abortion. But, of course, it's more than just Dobbs. And why? Because we have a court that is so conservative that our Chief Justice John Roberts is no longer in the middle. And this means that he's no longer needed for big decisions. How can we see this? We see this in the Dobbs decision that was five to four to overturn Roe. Now, it was six to three to uphold Mississippi's law that was a 15-week ban on abortion. But again, five to four to overturn Roe, the Chief Justice would have made a smaller decision. Now, does this mean that the Chief Justice is a moderate or a progressive? No, a million times no, not by any stretch of the imagination. It just shows you if the Chief Justice is to the left of this court, that's how conservative it is. And of course, let's all remember, this fundamentally changed when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Justice Amy Coney Barrett replaced her, This solidified a solid 6-3 conservative majority that I think we will have for decades to come. All right, Jessica, a lot of people were wondering, you know, we're talking about that 6-3 majority. A lot of people were wondering what that would look like in practice. And now we have our answer. We have actual data to back that up. And that brings us, as you said, to Chief Justice John Roberts, who you said just a second ago seems like a moderate on this court. 
to tie it into the most recent decision that everybody's been talking about. We devoted an entire recent episode of the Passing Judgment podcast to the Dobbs decision that scuttled those constitutionally protected abortion rights. And I hope that everyone goes back and gives that episode a listen to get more information on that specific decision. But the real world implications of this decision are already being felt in states with so-called trigger laws. We talked about those in that last episode. That Those trigger laws, they ban abortion or they banned abortion in the past tense now, I hate to say, from my perspective, the moment that the Dobbs decision was released. Now, many other states will soon follow suit, and by the time any sort of quasi-equilibrium is achieved, roughly half of the 50 states in the United States will have banned abortion. We've spent a whole season of our podcast talking about this kind of patchwork abortion protection rights on many, many episodes over the last year. So if we were to go back to our Supreme Court preview episode from early October of last year, I think that both of us felt that by the time this summer, the summer of 2022, where we are right now, arrived, this is exactly what we expected to happen or pretty close to it. Now that a couple weeks have passed since Dobbs, and I know, Jessica, you mentioned this too, you've done a couple dozen, maybe more media hits. I know you're exhausted. Do you have anything else to add to what we discussed in our last episode, specifically about Dobbs, before we move on to these other cases? So we did cover, I think and hope, a lot of good ground, which is that Dobbs is not the end of the fight over abortion rights. And so we are going to move on and talk about things that we've previewed for you before on the podcast. Specifically, there's going to be a fight between the federal government and states when it comes to issues like, can you send abortion pills into states that are trying to prohibit the use and prescription of abortion pills. That's a federal government versus state issue because the federal government is saying, yes, the FDA approves this, and yes, you do not need an in-person appointment to obtain abortion pills. We're also going to see fights state to state. So some states like Missouri are going to try and punish people, not just for obtaining an abortion within their boundaries, but also for trying to travel to another state to obtain an abortion. And then we have states like Connecticut, like California, that are saying no Missouri or states like Missouri, you can't do that. We won't cooperate with anybody who tries to punish a woman for traveling to obtain an abortion. And in fact, we are trying to create somewhat of a safe haven. Now, that again is going to be one of the big legal battles. And it really does all come back to, and it's hard to emphasize this again enough, the makeup of the court. And it really doesn't matter how popular it is that states be able to provide abortions. It doesn't matter if state lawmakers are reflecting the will of their constituents who may want to be able to obtain an abortion. What matters is that five members of the court said, no, there is no longer constitutional protection. And I'm thinking back, Joe, and I'm sure you are too, to the confirmation hearings where all of particularly the recent nominees and now members of the court were asked, you know, what do you think about Roe? Is it settled precedent? People have asked me, did anybody commit perjury when they said Roe is settled precedent? And the answer is no. I do not think that those statements, well, kind of obfuscating and misleading, I do not think that they amount to perjury because what they were just saying is, yes, I recognize that Roe v. Wade was a decision that was made by the Supreme Court and therefore it has precedential value. Nobody, as far as I know, said under oath, there is no way I will ever overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's what you look to. 
All right, so before we move on, speaking just a little bit more about the composition of the court, it seems that the sands have shifted directly under Robert's feet because a lot of the court watchers throughout this whole last Supreme Court season, I always think of it in terms of a ball game, it's a season to me, there was a lot of talk from those Supreme Court experts about Roberts trying to stake out some kind of middle ground position now that he has himself by default shifted towards the center. And that was a position that perhaps he would have liked to have not gotten rid of Roe completely, but that really didn't happen, did it? No, it didn't happen. And when we talked about this term back in October 2021, I remember we said either the court will just overturn Roe v. Wade or people will follow what Chief Justice John Roberts wants, which is basically to make Roe a hollow promise. And how do you do that? You look at a law like Mississippi's that's a 15-week ban on abortion. There's no way that that law can be squared with Roe v. Wade or, frankly, the more current precedent, which is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Casey tells us or told us that you can limit a woman's ability to obtain an abortion, but pre-viability, which is about 22 to 24 weeks into a pregnancy, you can't place an undue burden on that right. Now, obviously, 15 weeks is earlier than 22 to 24 weeks, and a ban is a lot more than a burden. So the only way that there was going to be this quote-unquote narrower path is if people joined John Roberts, and they didn't. He really was an island by himself saying, let's try and find a way to keep Roe and Casey intact, even though intellectually you can't do that. And let's also find a way to uphold this 15-week ban. Again, the compositional court matters so much, nobody joined him on that. All right, so let's move on. Let's set aside that Dobbs decision, which I know is a really big ask, but there were many other decisions that will also change our country in fundamental ways, and let's talk about a few of those. So just the day before the Dobbs decision was released, the court released a decision on a case out of New York State that loosened restrictions on the concealed carry of guns. Now, in any other Supreme Court term, this would have been kind of earth-shattering. But given the timeline of decisions, this one almost got completely eclipsed by the abortion ruling. But this one is also huge, Jessica. Can you give us a little background? Tell us why that is. Sure. So first, I'll just talk about what the law says. And this is an 109-year-old law. It's a gun control law. About four to five other states, including California, have similar laws. And it basically says if you want a concealed carry permit, then you need to not just check off a few boxes, a few objective criteria, but you also need to show a special need or proper cause as to why you need to carry a concealed weapon for self-defense. And so what New York had was a May issue law, meaning that you can satisfy certain objective criteria, but then a government official can still say, well, we don't think that you actually showed the proper cause, so we're going to deny you this permit. Other states that limit concealed carry permits are shall issue laws, which basically just mean you show that you are a certain age, maybe you've done a background check, maybe you've had a certain amount of training, and that's it. There's no additional level of cause that you need to show, and the government official doesn't have any discretion. They shall issue the permit at that time. And again, Jessica, very much like that Dobbs decision, this decision has implication for other states that reach far beyond New York. Am I right? 
That's exactly right. So, of course, the court is looking at New York's law, but it's making a decision as to what is permissible under the Second Amendment. So it's a constitutional decision. And that means if New York can't have a May issue law, then no other state can either. So as I said, there's about half a dozen states that have these similar laws. And these states are home to a great deal of the population in America. California is home to almost 12% of the nation's population. And let's put specific numbers on this. This would also change the law where we're both talking to you from, Los Angeles County. There's about 10 million people who live here. Our sheriff has said that right now there are under 1,000 concealed carry permits. He estimates that after the Supreme Court ruling, this could very quickly explode to 50,000. So we talk about these cases and we talk about them based on the legal theory, but also let's remember, a thousand concealed carry permits in a county of 10 million people exploding to 50,000, that's a lot more people with a lot more guns. And so these obviously have huge impacts. Joe, we would be remiss without mentioning the fact that we're recording this episode. We've lived through Uvalde. We've lived through just recently the Highland Park shooting on July 4th in a parade that orphaned a toddler. These decisions have huge real world implications. That Highland Park shooting, Jessica, took place not too far from where I grew up. I myself have run a half marathon in Highland Park, Illinois. There's a lovely outdoor music theater there. It's happened in that town. It's happened in this town. It's happened in many, many, many towns across our nation. But beyond geography, beyond those towns, Jessica, in terms of the Supreme Court, in terms of law, this is a significant reinterpretation of the Second Amendment, right? That's right. I think that's actually maybe the bigger part of the story. So, of course, as we talked about, the court has now said that there's no state or city or county that can have a May issue law like New York had for carrying concealed carry permits. But the bigger story, I think, is Justice Thomas's opinion and how it was written and how we he says we now need to interpret the Second Amendment. And specifically, what he's saying is, we look at any gun control measure and we ask whether or not it's consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historic understanding. Now, that might sound kind of innocuous, but it's both very, I would say, wooden and malleable at the same time. And it doesn't answer the question. So previously, lower courts were looking not just at the text of the Second Amendment, but also on what the government's need was, meaning they were looking at what's happening right now in our country. Do we need these kind of restrictions? Justice Thomas says we don't look at that. We don't look at the government's interest right now. We look at the text of what the Second Amendment says, and we look at our understanding of the Second Amendment either back in the very late 1700s or because of the 14th Amendment, which incorporates the Second Amendment in the late 1800s, in the mid-late 1800s. That's a far cry from our current society. And Justice Breyer, in his dissent, says the court refuses to consider the government interests that justify a challenge gun regulation, regardless of how compelling those interests may be. And that's where I think we're looking at implications far beyond New York's law, because if every law 
every law that says something like if you've been accused or convicted of domestic violence, then you cannot obtain a gun, laws regarding background checks, all of those laws, they're in question unless somebody can convince a majority of the court that there is a deep historical underpinning to those laws. Okay, so it seems like the winds are blowing in favor of more guns. We already have more guns than American citizens, so hold on to your hats, everybody. Uh, There are more decisions that we have to talk about, Jessica. There were a pair of decisions involving religion, the first of which erodes the separation of church and state, and it involved a former high school football coach who was disciplined by the Washington State School where he worked after praying at the 50-yard line after football games. So this court went with the First Amendment rights of the coach in this one, right? That's right. And they did that by clearing a couple of hurdles. That's the only sports analogy I'm going to give for today. Not the too first bad. Que- Thank you. The first question was whether or not this public high school football coach was engaged in private or public speech when at the end of games, he was praying at the 50-yard line. Now, there was some disagreement among the majority and the dissent about what exactly was taking place. Was the high school football coach just taking a kind of quiet moment to himself as he was in the beginning of this story when he started to pray at the 50-yard line? Or was it a much bigger affair, which it became, where students would kind of huddle around him and they would pray audibly, and it was, again, just much more um, overt and a much larger situation. And what the court said here is that Mr. Kennedy, the high school football coach, he was engaged in private speech. And that completely changes the analysis. If he was speaking for the government, engaged in public speech, then it's fine to tell him, you know, please do this on your private time. But they concluded he actually was on his private time. I would say that's not the call I would have made, again, considering I think he's in his uniform at the time. He's still not completely off duty. He's still in charge of the kids. It is after the game, but he's still acting. I would view this as in his official capacity. Again, the majority of the court disagreed, and they're entitled to, of course. So... The court said because he's engaged in this private speech, it would actually discriminate against him to tell him that he cannot engage in this private prayer. Now, the school district had argued that they were actually obligated under a different part of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, to ask him to stop praying in that particular place at that particular time. So what do we have here? It's basically the free exercise clause wins over the establishment clause. Simple, right? Just like all those law classes you teach, Jessica. I know in some small towns in America, to continue the sports analogy, high school sports is a religion. So why not mix them, right? Now, Jessica, there was another decision that involved religion, and this one involved a main law that prohibited public funds to be dispensed to religious schools. What can you tell us about this particular decision? Yeah, so this is very similar to what we just talked about, where the court basically said we're much more worried about the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Again, the idea that individuals have to be free of the government telling them, no, you can't exercise your religion in this way at this time, as compared to the establishment clause, which really protects people against a government 
that tries to establish religion or favor one religion over another or favor non-religion over religion. So this particular law dealt with the fact that there were places in Maine that were very rural and there were no secondary schools in the area. So the state created a system where you could use public funds to either travel to a public school or travel to and attend a private school. The caveat is that it was designed so that public funds would not go to religious schools, which again is something I think a lot of us thought was needed based on the Establishment Clause. We can't use government funds to establish a public religion. The court said, no, what you're actually doing is discriminating against religion. And this is the case where I think it prompted Justice Sonia Sotomayor in dissent to say, the court leads us to a place where the separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. There's another big case, Joe, next term that we're going to be talking about, which deals with a Colorado web designer. And she says, my religious beliefs prevent me from following the law and serving a same-sex couple who want me to provide them with a wedding website. I suspect after these two decisions, again, different cases, but I suspect we know where the court's going. Okay, so setting aside, we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the next Supreme Court season. There's that word again. But some people might say that taken together, those two religious decisions are actually First Amendment victories. So I know you touched upon this a little bit in your analysis, but what would you say to those people? So that is a specific view of the First Amendment, where you're much more concerned with the idea that the government may be discriminating against any displays of religion, then you are concerned about the government, for instance, endorsing religion or supporting religion or favoring religion over non-religion. I mean, that's what the majority of the court would say, which is we're actually just very pro-First Amendment, pro-free exercise clause. Again, Justice Sonia Sotomayor here is saying, but yeah, to the expense of the establishment clause, which you've basically killed, and you've said the separation of church and state is now a violation. So it's just two very different views of the First Amendment and what it were really what it requires. Okay, he said, he said, she said, she said, Jessica, there is one more case I want to talk about before we get out of here today, although initially sounding kind of wonky, given that it deals with the authority of federal agencies. This particular decision also has implications that will affect everyone. Simply put, this decision changes some things about how our government operates. It has to do with the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency. How does this decision change things when it comes to those rights of those uh, federal agencies? So it changes things in two ways. The case itself dealt, as you said, with the EPA and the power of the EPA to try and severely restrict greenhouse gas emissions. And this is really another story of congressional inaction, where President Obama at the time was trying to get legislation passed. Congress would not work with him. And he said, OK, I'm just going to have to work with the EPA. And so he basically directed the EPA, try and really limit greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And the question in this case was actually about a restriction that never went into place, a rule that never went into place, because the regulation in this case was stopped in its tracks. President Trump said, I'm never going to put it into action. President Biden has said, I'm going to rewrite it. So this was a huge case about a regulation that frankly never was. And 
The question, again, in the case was whether or not the EPA can make a so-called major decision, meaning it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a really big decision where the federal agency is arguably taking some discretion and making something bigger than a kind of incremental regulation or rule. What the court said here is that you need specific authorization from Congress before federal agencies can do this. So in this way, the decision goes beyond just what can the EPA do. It's really about what can federal agencies do and do they need this specific authorization again from Congress? Now, people might be listening and saying, okay, so Congress as is really frankly their responsibility has to tell federal agencies this is how much power you have and this is the authority that you have this is the discretion that you have now there's basically a couple problems here the main one of course is that congress doesn't act now that's more of a practical political problem but that is a real problem when we're talking about climate change which we're hurtling towards a catastrophe when it comes to climate change but I will say there's also been some kind of think pieces that I've read in the wake of the decision that make me think that what the court is requiring of Congress may actually be not just politically difficult, but it's not completely clear to me if they gave Congress enough guidance to really tell federal agencies what they can and can't do. So this is, it's a big decision. In my mind, actually, this would have been the really big decision of the term if it weren't for the abortion case, maybe bigger than the religion cases, just in terms of how our government works and the problems that it can and can't solve. Um, but it's not going to be the end of our litigation surrounding the authority of federal agencies and the power of the so-called administrative state. Okay, Jessica, thank you for all of that. But before we go, I want to talk about the court themselves or the members of the court, the 6-3 conservative majority, that new majority. They're really flexing their judicial muscle here in this new term. We expect that probably won't change. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, that those conservatives, that's that block of Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And along with the once quiet, longest serving member of the court, that is Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, We've talked about this before on this very podcast. Thomas used to be the George Harrison of the court, meaning that he was the quiet beetle. But that is no longer the case. He's become much more verbose in this current term. Some of that might be attributed to the fact that these are taking place in the midst of a pandemic, so they're doing them in a different way. But is there anything else behind that? Is this the Republican majority like feeling their oats, or what's the deal here? I think the conservative legal movement and Republicans have been waiting decades for this moment. Clarence Thomas is a really interesting case because he does, at this point, I think, wield a lot of power on the court. It's interesting how much we started hearing from him, and I mean that literally, hearing from him more during the pandemic when the oral arguments moved to telephonic oral arguments. And I remember that moment. I was listening in. It was live oral arguments. We've never been able to listen real time, as far as I can remember. Even Bush v. Gore, I think they just released later that day. And I remember the Chief Justice going next to Justice Thomas, who is the next most senior. And I and everybody else assumed that we were going to hear some, you know, pass. And there's Clarence Thomas saying, I have a question. And because the justices were going in order of seniority, I think that question and 
questions that he had in other cases really helped to set the tone of what was discussed during oral arguments. And that has continued. And I will say, I think that his power is only going to grow. He has a lot of former clerks who are now on the bench. He has said for a long time that he wants to loop back to Second Amendment rights. The court did that here. Uh, He was the one to write the decision. And uh, Joe, I guess we would be remiss if we didn't mention one of his former clerks is actually John Eastman, who's now at the center of the January 6th inquiry, because it's John Eastman who wrote this legal memo for former President Trump that, frankly, it's a legal memo, but I think it directs illegal activity. And John Eastman, again, we can't say Clarence Thomas told him to do that. I'm not implying that at all. But it's interesting to see Justice Thomas, he's been on the bench a long time. He has a lot of former clerks and they're powerful people. And they specifically, I think, are picking up on things he's saying in oral arguments and in his opinions. And maybe we'll look back and we'll see this as the era of Justice Thomas. There was something else that was very unique about this last Supreme Court term or season, as I've been saying through this whole episode. There was a leak. Now, we don't know, at least at this point, the origin of that leak, and it had to do with that Dobbs decision on abortion. There's all kinds of theories as to whether or not they were, you know, the conservative people were seeding the cloud to try to make it sound like less of a big decision when it did come out, less of a sea change. Some of the more liberal people say it's more of a conspiracy theory in terms of the conservatives doing something. But the fact remains, this is something that is very, very unusual. Do you think this sort of thing, given this highly politicized court, given our highly divisive government, Is this something we're going to see more of, or do you think that's going to be an isolated case? And when will we find out? Will we ever find out this this, this investigation that's taking place? What's the end game here? So I have a feeling we're never going to find out who leaked the draft. Um, And in part because the chief justice has put the court martial in charge of this. This is not typically the court martial's job. Um, Obviously, there's no typical about this, but... I don't know. I can't escape the conclusion that we probably will never, quote unquote, get to the bottom of this particular investigation, maybe decades later when somebody writes their book. In terms of will this happen again? I mean, that's the big question, which is what does this leak do? Is it now we've broken the dam, so to speak, and the institution of the Supreme Court as we knew it has not just changed in terms of being far more conservative, but is now a leaky ship? I will say There is no answer. We won't know until we know, except we know that the chief justice will do absolutely everything he can. It's this so goes against the norms of what is acceptable in the court. And I do think that people will be walking around the court for a while, kind of very suspicious of each other. And um, we want them, frankly, to be able to work together and gain some consensus and not have to guard every word for a potential leak. So we're just going to have to see how this plays out. Okay, Jessica. And now, and now the justices break for the summer. They're going to pool parties. They're going on vacations wherever Supreme Court justices go. But the beginning of the Supreme Court term, like that next school year for school kids, that's October 3rd, is less than 90 days away. So there are some big cases coming up. We're going to keep an eye on those for you guys. And uh, I can't wait to talk about all those things with you, Jessica, when that rolls around. But we've got lots of other episodes to go this summer. So please keep listening, everybody. Thank you, Jessica. 
Thank you, Joe. Happy two-year anniversary. Happy two-anniversary to you. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica after she takes a big post-Supreme Court season nap. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. You can find this podcast that you're listening to right now on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you.